0: Professor Hankins, you've written a new book, Virtue Politics, Soulcraft, and Statecraft in Renaissance Italy. Uh, To start, can you tell us a little bit about what brought you to write the book? Well, I'm
1: I'm an intellectual historian, uh, and I've been studying the Italian Renaissance for a long time. Uh, I've always had studies along kind of two tracks. One is studying the history of Platonism. And the other track was studying civic humanism. I did a lot of work on Leonardo Bruni, and uh, I, my studies of Bruni, indicated to me that some of the, some of the pet theories of my generation about civic humanism, were not uh, really accurate. And when I started writing about Bruni in the 90s, I was taking a lot of pot shots at, <laughs> at. Uh, at theories that I didn't think uh, accorded with the data that I was studying, the the, uh, sources I was studying. But what really happened was in 2010, I was invited to give the Carlisle lectures at Oxford, and I decided that I couldn't do a lecture full of pot shots at the existing theories. I I had to say what I thought uh, was the message or the messages of Renaissance political thought. So, um, The Cornell lectures were more of a start of my book than uh, an end point. Uh, I realized that I was thinking quite different thoughts, and and I was already focused to some extent on the issue of virtue. But it wasn't until I finished the lectures that I really realized what was going on, was that I had a different understanding of what the word republic meant, uh, and I had a different understanding of what civic humanism was and it all had to do with virtue, and it didn't have much to do with regimes. Because that had been, I think, the mark of uh, of the civic humanist thought that had been investigated by Hans Baron and Eugenio Guran, and later on by J. G. A. Pocock and Skinner, that they were interested in the Republican tradition. And I thought that that was, uh, first of all, a very partial view because most of the humanists were, I, I would say a majority of the humanists were actually monarchists and non-Republicans. And secondly, the word Republic actually had a much broader meaning in the Renaissance. It didn't mean what we think of it, a Republic, meaning a, a, um, a sort of power-sharing arrangement or a, uh, a polyarchy, or what you want to call about it. Uh, a republic was just a, a good state. It was the opposite of republic was not kingship, but tyranny. That's the way I put it in the book. That when republic, any kind of republican government, res publica, was, was a well-functioning state that was moral and respected the, uh, respected the liberties of its subjects. But it didn't have to be a republic in our sense of non-monarchical government. my so maybe I should continue then because how I got to the to the book then but what then happens is I decided to um, the other thing that happened to me on, on my way to writing a book was I encountered Chinese political thought recent Chinese political thought uh, quite by accident in a way because I was invited to a conference in in uh, China Tianjin in 2013 for the anniversary of Machiavelli one of my Chinese students uh, wrote to me into this. And I, I came into contact with Chinese scholars who had a quite different view of Machiavelli to start off with. but they are also telling me that what I was doing was very similar to what the Confucian literati uh, thought. And I said, absolutely not, this is the Renaissance, nothing to do with Confucius and so forth. But I started to read some of these modern Confucian political theorists uh, Daniel Bell, uh, Tong Dong Bai, uh, Joseph Chan, who I particularly like, uh, who are writing about the uh, political thought of Confucianism, which emphasizes political education and emphasizes virtue and the need for for mer- meritorious governance. And so it lines up very well with ancient uh, Greek thought, which places a great emphasis on political education or on the, the moral preconditions for good government. Whereas, you know, modern Western political theory tends to focus on contract theory, on, uh, on liberty, on ordered liberty, in the case of the Belarus Papers, uh, on, um, on protection of rights. And that sort of, it, it emphasizes constitutionalism Whereas the ancient Greeks, I think, uh, uh, were more concerned, or at least their priority was having good people, wise and virtuous people in office. So what I learned from the Chinese political theorists, this wasn't just a set of slogans, but you could actually construct a political theory around it. And once I started reading them, I realized that that's what the humanists were doing, too. They they had a kind of, they're not political theorists in in, in any kind of formal sense. It's not, when you read the humanists, you're not reading, you know, Hobbes or Locke's Second Treatise of Government. You're reading something that's much more informal. It's also true of Confucian political theorists. But it does add up to something like a political, a, a political, um, a, a strain of political thought. And it's a strain of political thought that I think has been overlooked in modern uh, modern histories of, of political thought. And to me, it's very interesting. I just if I could continue on that, that line of thought, to me it's very interesting because when you read the modern Chinese political theorists, they have a a kind of attitude of of adversarial um, an adversarial stance towards. Western liberal democracy. So their view is that China has its political theory, the West has its political theory. Uh, China shouldn't give in to the, to the uh, pressure from the West to turn into a liberal democracy because there are resources of, of fine governance coming out of the Chinese political theory which are more compatible with the Chinese tradition and civilization. So what my research seemed to be disclosing was that There's a similar tradition in the West, uh, but it's been forgotten It's Mm -hmm. because the Renaissance political theorists just were buried Mm -hmm. by what happened in the 17th century. Mm
0: -hmm. And so to get back before what happened in the 17th century, uh, the the Renaissance, which is your main topic, of course, uh, for you is an age of virtue politics. Um, If you had to succinctly define virtue politics, what would you say?
1: Well, virtue politics is a term that I thought I made up. Uh, actually, it turns out to be used as a translation of a word in Chinese, but that's another. You can come back to that if you're interested in that. But uh, it's modeled on virtue ethics. Uh, as you know, virtue ethics is one of the major approaches to uh, moral theory in the modern world in the academy. Uh, and it's usually contrasted with Kantian deontology and with utilitarianism which are concerned with finding rules for measuring conduct. Whether conduct is good or bad, is measured by a set of rules that are evolved from a, from a, a theoretical um, stance on utility or on, on, on rationality. But virtue, politi- virtue ethics is, is designed to, uh, focuses rather on the effects of action on your character. You know, what will happen to you as a result of doing a, a, a repeated actions of a particular kind. So, if you're doing a lot of vicious actions, you will turn into a vicious person, and meaning vicious not in the contemporary sense, but non-virtuous actions. Let's say, but if you do virtuous actions and you are guided to do them by your upbringing and your training and your, your friendly local philosopher, uh, then you will become a fine person, a no, noble person. And that's what we should aim at. We should aim at making ourselves persons of high moral character, and that will make us happy. So this is also the view of Renaissance humanists um, about politics, that the best state is the one that leads, that does fine actions. The best state is the one that uh, makes its own citizens uh, happy and good and wise. Uh, That would be the maximal position of someone like Francesco Patrizzi, a more, a small, a more um, let's say, uh, restrained or limited idea would be that you, you make the leaders of society wise and virtuous. And if you can make the leaders of, wise and, of society wise and virtuous, then they will have legitimacy. So one of the key things that links Chinese political theory with Western political theory is this idea that legitimacy springs from, from moral behavior. In China, above all, legitimacy springs from uh, care for the common good, for the people. Uh, in the West, uh, legitimacy, virtue politics, legitimacy springs from springs from virtuous and wise behavior by uh, by rulers. And the contrast here is with the legal tradition, uh, which in the West, which takes um, legitimacy to spring from just title. That if you are uh, properly chosen for office by your feudal superior or by uh, elected uh, in appropriate ways or chosen um, uh, according to due process, due process, according to to correct procedures, uh, then you are legitimate. And it doesn't really matter whether you're good or bad. Uh, You can lose legitimacy by uh, by breaking a lot of laws. Uh, but being a bad person doesn't lose your legitimacy. This is the legal tradition. Humanists thought exactly the opposite. You know, Petrarch is a great is a great um, hater of this sort of legitimacy. He's hater the idea of title uh, as you know that someone becomes a powerful in society because they have the title. He wants to reform things so that people, um, that rulers acquire legitimacy from. The quality of their acts, so that a just society is one that has just people ruling it, right? Um, and this is this is very Chinese, <laughs> in my view, the idea that uh, that legitimacy is somehow uh, linked with good good behavior, and that societies don't function well even if they have good laws; they need to have good people. Uh, there's a, one of the famous Confucian scholars, Shunzi. Uh, one says there are people who create order there are no rules that create order mm-hmm. right? so that uh, an orderly society good society happy society is one that's run by good people and wise people uh, and people who have um, deep, are deeply shaped by their tradition by ancient traditions and this is another great um, Parallel between Chinese political Confucian political theory and Western humanist political theory is the importance of antiquity, right? because the humanists believe that their own time is corrupt. It's immoral. Its um, political authorities of the time have no real um, authority with the people because they they had no they don't care about the people. They just care about themselves. They're more interested in their own wealth and power and not interested at all in how they reign, how they govern. But what Petrarch thinks is that the ancient world did it better. Now, he's, un- he's under no illusions that the ancient world was perfect. Uh, that's not what he's saying. But he, he thinks that there is some kind of uh, moral um, r- moral nobility and virtue in the ancients that's been lost. And the way to get back to that is to study the ancients. The ancients should be our models, or at least the best of the ancients should be our models. And you find that also in the uh, Confucian tradition. The Confucian are all uh, always looking back to uh, the uh, the sage kings of Yao and Shun and the early Chinese dynasties. They, of course, look back to Confucius himself and Mencius and Shunzi and all the great um, political theorists of the Uh, of the the, the spring and autumn warring states period. Uh, They really believe that the ancients provide us with a model for good government, good behavior that has been lost. And the key thing there for them always is virtue, right? That the ancients had virtue. They they were able to build happy, strong, orderly, peaceful societies uh, because of who they were. So the best way to reform government, I would say, instead of forming an ideal constitution, the best way to have a good government is to read Plutarch.
0: So that that brings me to this question that occurred to me throughout the book. As you said, the, the thinkers you discuss aren't political theorists in the conventional sense. You can't open up Petrarch and find a political geometry as you would with Hobbes, but there is this through line of virtue politics that it's, it's not just rhetoric, it's a concept. And it occurred to me, I don't know if the analogy quite holds, but as you said, the virtue politics came out of the Carlisle lectures. And I was thinking of um, Quentin Skinner uh, famously argued in Liberty Before Liberalism, that there might be this concept called neo-Roman liberty. And it was concept. It's of course very controversial, but it was it was conceptually interesting because Skinner could argue it was a historical discovery in the texts he was reading. But it also seemed to have an upshot for political theorists uh, that they could they this was an alternate form of liberty they could they could theorize. Would you say virtue politics is is similar a historical discovery, but it has some sort of conceptual upshot for how we might think about politics today?
1: I see. Well, let me back up slightly and talk about the formal versus informal character of humanist writings. There is one theorist who is quite formal in his approach, who I consider to be an optimal example of humanist uh, virtue politics. And I'm very happy because of this, because you 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 can't have a major tradition without a major thinker, right? (laughs) So um, what I'm trying to do is to elevate, as it were, uh, Francesco Patrizzi of Siena Mm -hmm. into the major theorist of Renaissance humanist political theory. So Mm -hmm. my picture of this is that the Renaissance has two major political theories. One is the realist theory, uh, amoral realist theory of of, of Machiavelli, and that is a reaction to the idealistic political theory of the Renaissance, which is virtue politics, and the chief theorist of that is going to be Francesco Patrizzi of Siena, I have a team now working to, uh, there's an English translation of an epitome of Francesco Patrici's De Republica uh, from, I believe, 1576. So I have a team now that's working to transcribe that and update it, provide notes and so on. So people will finally have a text they can, they can turn to, which presents um, the major ideas of Renaissance virtue politics in a fairly formal uh, format, right, and we're going to put that online, let people be able to study it. I'm also writing a book about Francesco son. i have got three chapters done now, so there, there. I will have a figure that I can oppose on the battlefield of ideas to, to Machiavelli. <laughs> so getting back to Skinner, I started with Skinner, of course, and everyone uh, who reads this, works in this field, starts with Skinner. Um, and I, I think that your, your your supposition is correct that I also begin with history but end up with uh, a set of ideas which I believe are, are relevant to our current time. And No one can really do political theory seriously without thinking about what's going on around them. And um, I suppose that Quentin was thinking about the... Uh, Struggle between liberal democracy and Marxism when he was developing his ideas, <clears throat> as was Hans Baron, by the way, and Eugenio Baran, um, and they had reservations about both uh, the, the sort of dominant political constellations of ideas. And you know, out, of, out of Quentin Skinner's relationship, above all, with Philip Pettit, there, there emerged a, a, a modern form of republicanism, sometimes called communitarianism. Uh, which uh, professes to look to the pre-modern ideas of liberty as a way of rethinking liberty in the modern world. Right. So um, Philip Pettit came up with his idea of a non-domination model of liberty. That what you want in a free society isn't necessarily rules—a rule, uh, a set of rights that protect people. From uh, the invasion of government, nor is it necessarily um, putting uh, your side in charge as opposed to the other side. That's 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 one worse way of of understanding liberty. That you know, we're being oppressed, so we have to win the battle, and and we will now be in charge, and we won't be oppressed. We'll oppress, we'll oppress somebody else. That's the usual human way, lambs into lions, right? We we. we um, we want to win the battle so that we are free, but the other side then is oppressed the way we were oppressed. Um, that's the model of the New England Puritans. I like to think of that. Mm-hmm. But so Quentin Skinner and Barron uh, had a different idea that you could come up with another form of liberty, this non-domination model of liberty, which would uh, goal would be to have a society in which um, people had no... Uh, that the structures were modified so that no one dominated anybody else unjustly, right? Anyway, so get back to my my model. I I also think that uh, humanist political theory has something to offer in modern times, that we very obviously have a a leadership deficit in Western countries. And I think also in Asia, Um, maybe a few exceptions, but the ability to, um, to get population, large populations to uh, to follow one's lead is something that's not really, there's a kind of leadership problem uh, in the modern world. Uh, and one sign of this is factionalism. We have great excessive factionalism in our society, which means that no one is able to stand up and say, this is the right thing to do. <clears throat> I have the moral ethos, I have the moral standing to um, lead us into the correct path so instead people fight about interests right about which how big how big a part of the pie are you going to get but no one is taking a stance uh, for um, for justice uh, and being able to convince a lot of other people because they themselves are just or the parties they represent are just right so I, I think this is not of course just the Renaissance human is saying this is Plato and Aristotle Also, are very uh, insistent that the leaders of society have to have some kind of uh, authenticity coming from their own moral status, right? Their own knowledge, their own wisdom, uh, their own um, uh, temperance and justice, and all of those virtues and courage. Uh, And you know, set up, of course, to to prevent courage from happening too much bureaucratic uh, governments in the modern world. But I I do think that reflection on the ways humanists sought to improve the quality of leadership and the uh, emphasis of the humanness on the common good, that attention to the common good was the way to secure a reputation for virtue and to secure the obedience of people uh, was uh, key. So, one of the issues the humanists pick up, one of the principles the humanists pick up from the Stoics is that a sign of legitimate government, a sign of good government, is when the people obey willingly, when you don't have to coerce them, right? If you have to coerce people, if you have to have surveillance and police <clears throat> and um, you know enforcement and large penalties and... And uh, drawing and quartering, all of that means that you are not a just society uh, because it means that people aren't willingly want to obey you. Now, of course, in every society has its malefactors, people who are, who, are, who are evil and wicked and need to be coerced. But if you find yourself as a ruler or a, a regime um, coercing good people, that means, that means that your regime is evil. So what you ideally want is a regime that people accept willingly because that shows that you are following the the, the interests of, of everyone and not just of the few.
0: Um, so much of virtue politics seems to, of course, depend on justice and goodness and non-coercion. Uh, and so that that naturally invites the question perhaps where Machiavelli fits in virtue politics and what the status of Machiavelli is in the, in the book. Is it an, an anti-Machiavellian book?
1: Uh, well, I'm not sure I would want to put it that way because <laughs> Machiavelli is, is uh, someone with great insight mm-hmm. into the way polities work. What I'm trying to do in the book is use Machiavelli as kind of foil to bring out the distinctive character of virtue politics, uh, which Machiavelli himself would thought was a pipe dream, and uh, he was well aware of the teachings of his fellow humanists, uh, but he thought they were simply ineffective. And uh, furthermore, that the uh, the attempt to turn the rulers of Italy into paragons of virtue was not only failed, but it had uh, weakened Italy to the point where e- Italy was easily conquered by by uh, foreigners, by the French and the Spanish and the Germans and so forth in the Calamita d'Italia, the period of Italy's political, loss of political Italy's political independence. So, uh... He has a theory of human nature that that is inimical to the humanist theory. Humanists always believe that human nature can be improved, right? That's that's the bottom. If you, you, why would you ever become a humanist educator unless you, you believe that that human nature could be improved? That's what that's what the humanities is for, right? When Petrarch invents the in Studium Monotontis, he's inventing a educational uh, educational. Uh, uh, Practice whose goal is to be transformative. Uh, So the liberal arts in the Middle Ages are very technical subjects. They were invented. The seven liberal arts was invented in late antiquity uh, by Christian uh, thinkers. Marcinus Capella was possibly Christian. In the time of Augustine, basically, they were trying to strip down the ancient liberal arts into a set of sciences that Christians would find useful. But the transformative part of of ancient education was expected to be Christianity itself. Christianity was what's going to be transforming, right? So the liberal arts were were there, something you needed to learn, something that was beneficial to society, but it wasn't meant to be morally transformative. So what Petrarch does is he, he wants to redesign education. He had, the invention of humanities was done precisely to try to transform the quality of of the ruling elites in Italy and to make them more open to virtue wherever they were found. So the ruling elite should be open elites. Uh, they should be uh, accepting into their ranks any person of lower status who proved their virtue and, 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 uh, and, and wisdom. And by the same token, uh, nobles, hereditary nobles who didn't have those qualifications that were not wise and virtue should be cast aside cast out of the elite. All right. So Machiavelli thinks this is all pie in the sky. Uh, it hasn't worked. Uh, of course, he's living in the aftermath of the invasions of Italy in 1494. And according to Machiavelli, the problem is that these uh, you, know, you have all of these rulers with fine humanist education, because the humanists, after all, were successful in spreading their humanist education throughout the elites of Italy. Uh, they had this wonderful humanist education, but they ran like rabbits when the French came down and didn't do anything to preserve to defend their states. So where's all that humanist virtue? Where's all the courage? Right? Um, Machiavelli thinks this is just goes to show that his Lucretian view of human nature is, is correct—that human, human beings are driven by desire uh, for security and for pleasure—and uh, you can't really depend. You can't really uh, expect human beings to act well, uh, and use that use that um, desire for virtue uh, to um, build build a political system on that. You can't do that. So Machiavelli's view is that this is all a mistake, and that we have to redesign our societies insofar as we can along ancient lines, which means that we have to be more like the Romans. And here's the case. This is one of the great differences. The humanists were all convinced they were acting just like the Romans too, right? They they were that's the whole point of their education is to try to imitate the Greeks and the Romans because they thought the Greeks and the Romans had a superior virtue, they had superior wisdom, they, they knew things that we, we have forgotten, and they could, they had uh, strengths of character that we no longer have. So Machiavelli thinks that he also thinks the ancients are superior, especially the Romans. But the reason why is because they knew how to be they knew how to fight. They were cruel and broke all the laws of God and man when they needed to, right? He has a very negative view of the Romans morally, but he also admires them because they're powerful and they have a big empire. And so his his historical project is to figure out how the Romans really did it, right? Biondo Flavio, who is the humanist authority on the Romans, thinks that the the reason why the Romans were great is because they were virtuous and because they were inclusive. Uh, They took in, they were cosmopolitan, they took in the best from all over the Roman Empire. They had the famous Spanish emperors of the early uh, second century who were Rome's best emperors, but they weren't Romans, they were Spaniards. So this was used as an example of why the Romans were great. Machiavelli is much more of a nativist to start off with, less, less of a cosmopolitan. But he thinks the Romans were great because they, 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 they were militaristic. And one of Machiavelli's pet uh, projects was revival of citizen militias, right? That's one of his key ideas. But one, going with that idea is the idea of remilitarization of society. Uh, breaking down the barriers between civilians and professional soldiers. Uh, So the reason why uh, Italy had not been able to defend itself, according to Machiavelli, and this is, I think, just wrong, uh, nevertheless is his view, is that uh, professional soldiers didn't have the grit to defend the, the towns they were hired to defend because they weren't, they weren't, citizens of those towns. They, they, As soon as their pay ran out, they went into another direction. They weren't going to risk their lives. <clears throat> but with the French who had a national army, which again is not quite true, they had a lot of mercenaries in the French army. Nevertheless, Bacchiavelli pretends that they're, they're a national army, fighting for their king. And that's why they fight better. So what has to happen in Florence and other cities that want to be able to resist uh, the northern barbarians is they have to remilitarize the way the Romans had. They he wants to hear the young men of the town in the Campus Martius, you know, marching, and he wants banners and, and drums. He wants the cities filled with martial, uh, martial uh, young men uh, who are uh, patriotic and want to defend their country. Right. So he, he thinks that the whole business of mercenary soldiers is what's gone wrong. The humanists, you know, of course, also have their views on mercenaries, but their idea is that the difference between a good mercenary and a bad mercenary is the good mercenaries are virtuous, right, and the bad mercenaries are not. So the goal of – they have a, a famous work of military education by Roberto Valturio uh, who tries to explain how a mercenary soldier or any soldier can become virtuous. So if you're a city-state and you want to defend yourself – uh, you're going to hire a virtuous mercenary soldier rather than a non-virtuous one. Machiavelli thinks that's a contradiction in terms. Mm. And of course, famously, he reinvents the whole meaning of virtue, right? Virtue is not the traditional uh, four cardinal cardinal virtues uh, justice, temperance, um, uh, uh, justice, temperance, and courage, and wisdom, uh, but its virtue is. Is um, effectiveness. It's manliness. It's being able to get stuff done. Uh, it's being able to accomplish your goals. That's that's virtue. That's uh, and the opposite is woman is womanly weakness, which um, Machiavelli attributes to religious believers and the church. Again, that's completely wrong, but that's what he that's the way he he presents things.
0: Mm. So I guess to, to end, one last question. Many of the, the writers of virtue politics uh, you call pedagogical or didactic authors. They're trying to instill a moral lesson in their readers. Um, I don't know if you're trying to instill a moral lesson, but what would you hope your, your readers walk away with?
1: Well, uh, I think in the modern West, First of all, you know, I'm a historian and I want people to to have what I think is a more accurate view of Renaissance political thought. So that's yeah. the kind of bottom line. But in terms of the modern transferability of these ideas, I think in the modern West uh, and also in communist China right now, people rely too much on um, on procedures and on bureaucracies and on legal systems and on enforcement Uh That the the, the solution to problems in our society today uh, are typically seen as uh, solutions that can be solved, problems that can be solved with more laws, right? More subsidies, more enforcement. Uh, So we multiply not laws. And the the Romans had a motto. uh, Also, there's there's, there's a Chinese version of this, too. The Roman motto is corruptissima res publica legas, right? The most corrupt republics have the most laws, and the more corrupt they become, the more laws they, they pass. But what, what keeps a republic from going corrupt is, is virtue. So my, my view is that we, we should think more seriously about, as a society, about how, um, about the people who inhabit our institutions, Right? Uh, it's, you can't simply set up a, a set of institutions like a machine and then plug in uh, any old human beings into those institutions and they will run properly. Uh, good institutions work best when they're inhabited by good people. Uh, and they don't function uh, when, when the people are parasitic on the institutions, right The people who if you're a lawyer, um, you can't simply think in terms of what you can get away with, what's legal. But you also have to think of what's right and you have to think about how uh, the legal system can be made to to uh, to encompass the right and to promote the right. So uh, instead of I think that that's probably what I'm I think there's some move, obviously, in law schools and all sorts of schools to, towards character education and towards legal ethics, and all those things have become a matter of great interest. Uh, but I'm not sure we, we are, we're there yet. I think we need a lot more attention to to the uh, moral quality of our uh, our elites. We can't have simply technical elites. People who are trained in social science to come up with good policies to solve problems. We need to have people who are into some way of doing uh, what the Chinese tried to do in their examination system in Imperial period of China uh, to... Um, elevate people based on their uh, performance, which includes their uh, their treatment of people and includes also um, their devotion to the common good and their devotion to uh, their sort of selflessness, if you will. Mm.